Well, October the 28th, Lesson 45, but we may not get, we may not be able to begin Lesson 45 because we need to go back and finish up from last week again. We'll just see how it goes. We're not going to be a, a slave to time in any particular way. If we get there, we'll be looking at these six antithesis from uh, the last portions of chapter 5 in Matthew, which deals with loving your enemies, love and hate, as it were. But again, I say before that, just a little bit of information as we finish up from last week's lesson, which dealt primarily with retaliation and revenge from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38 and going through verse 42. We didn't quite get finished. We a short review. We looked at a couple of things from those verses. I'm not going to go back and recap all of that. <clears throat> we, we focused initially on what we understand, lex talionis from Scripture. You know, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, those passages of Scripture um, from Leviticus. We looked at those and what they meant. Jesus was referencing those as he spoke. And he said, you've heard it said, or that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And he carried on about how the rabbinic teaching had taken, uh, the, or really had ignored the word, had dropped off some of what the word required and added information that the word didn't require. So Christ, again, is explaining that. That's why you get the, the term antithesis. You've heard this, but I'm telling you this. This is the way that it should be. And we looked at that. We looked at the fact that that was given primarily as a deterrent for future crimes and actions. That's why that was there. It was also there to prevent personal vengeance, personal anger from entering into a, a situation where someone had been wronged or whatever. And we also learned that it was also important that something be done. That it, doesn't just, it didn't just set limits on actions that had offended someone. But it did require that something be done. There was a minimum standard as well. And we talked about accountability. We looked at that. We were, uh, had just gotten into uh, the question about what Jesus was saying about that issue. And he was speaking specifically about someone who had legitimately wronged you. And really, in context, a person had legitimately wronged you in a very evil and present public way. He says, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. This is verse 39. Do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. We'll begin looking at that in a cultural context. Uh, it's interesting to see that some of the information that I read had talked about the fact that virtually everyone in that day was right-handed. I don't know if that's, they took them as a child and took that whatever wasn't a ball, I don't guess, but something out of their left hand, put it in their right hand. I see that still happening today. <laughs> or vice versa, if you want a left-handed pitcher or whatever. But at any rate, he says to be slapped in that manner would have meant that someone backhanded you, which would have been just a super insult. And we went on and looked at that, just to get a picture about what he's talking about. We looked at the fact also he was talking about not an evil situation or not the presence of evil in general, but literally an evil person. If, you've been, if you're being mistreated by someone who's notably, they act in an evil way. This is the way that they kind of conduct themselves. This is the kind of person that you're dealing with. This is the kind of person that you turn the other cheek to. 
So once again, we begin to focus upon this issue of the way that we think, what's in our mind, what's in our heart. This is what Jesus is dealing with here, right? He's not dealing with the letter of the law. He's talking about what comes out of the heart and being prepared to deal with problems in relationships, even problems wherein you are a legitimate victim. How would you respond? What preparations have you made in your heart and mind to allow you to respond correctly? Again, break it on down. How has your heart been changed? What do you adhere to? What's most important to you? Can you, can you look beyond the actions or words of a person and be able to see and experience the potential for God to work in that situation? And you know that the way you respond to your mistreatments will either enhance that ability or it will greatly deter that ability. So, that's where we were going. We talked about that. <coughs> we even get the term today, which survives, turn the other cheek. That's what we say, just turn the other cheek. But that's more than just a physical process. It requires a changing of the heart and mind to do that. So that takes us up to where we want to begin today because along this line, certainly we can say that Christ, the Lord Jesus Himself, is our example in these things, is He not? He certainly is. First Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 20. Peter tells us, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. And then he adds, this finds favor with God. It finds favor with Him. For you have been called for this purpose. Think of that. I think Peter knew what he was talking about too, don't you? We've been called for that purpose. This is the way we are to think and act and respond in these situations. Since Christ also suffered for you, and He says plainly, leaving you an example for you to follow in His footsteps. Now we can't say, no one in here can say, well, I didn't know that. I didn't understand that. Well, now we do. And I'm sure you've read this before. This is His Word, plain and clear. Following His footsteps. The one who committed no sin, as, as we continue. This goes through verse 23. Nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And we've already covered, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. We looked at those verses, I do believe. This is his work. So the question again is, do you rest in that? Do you have confidence in that? Do you? Can you honestly say that this truth changes the way that you think about folks specifically when you're hurt, when you've been mistreated? We always go back to Ephesians 4.15 talking about that verse that includes that phrase, about speaking the truth in love. That's the key. But it must come from a heart 
that's already prepared. A heart that's been changed. A heart that's, that's given over. And I dare say, based upon the type of incident, the type of deterioration in a particular relationship or whatever, it can still be quite difficult. Right? Dealing with our children sometimes. Not so much us, but we know our children have been wrong. Or our grandchildren. <laughs> or any of those kinds of things. Our spouse. People who are dear to us. People that we would normally and rightfully come to their aid. But for what purpose? Is it for a pound of flesh? Or is it to make sure that a situation is made clear? And certainly among Christian brothers and sisters to make sure that Christ is glorified. Listen, this is going to happen. There's going to be rubs. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be out and out disregard one for another in some fashion. For what? For a multitude of reasons. Why? Because we're human beings. We still battle with the flesh. That's not an excuse. It's just a reality. But we can live on the other side of this. And we are required to do that as the church of Jesus Christ. We're required to do it. We're equipped to do it. Oh God, this is so hard. I feel. God knows your feelings. We talked about feelings last week. He understands that. He's more concerned about your obedience than He is about your feelings. Your feelings will change. And you'll be able to put them in the right category. And understand that they're just that. They're just feelings. They can be deceptive. We, we, we condition ourselves sometimes to think, well, if I feel this way, then that's a validation that whatever I'm feeling is legitimate. That's not necessarily true. Compare, examine everything against the clear teaching of God's Word in any situation. This is what changes. This is the effect of the Word of God on us. That is a continual process throughout our life. Pray that it will never stop. If you get to a point when you feel like that's not happening in your life, you're in a lull. You're, 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 you're kind of dead there for a while. You're not listening. There's always work to do in that area within us. Because we will never arrive. Luke chapter 6, verses 27. We begin there through verse 30. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Christ speaking, do good to those who hate you. That's a hard thing to do. can be. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. I think the King James says, who despitefully use you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, he says, offer him the other. And this is, of course, the parallel Scripture. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Wow, that's radical, is it not? That's Christ's teaching. And it stands to reason that these kinds of actions, these kinds of commitments come from a heart that's been changed. And we talked about the fact last week that Christians aren't doormats. We listed those things. We looked at the Scripture. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what he's requiring. Love, it says, covers what? A multitude of sin. Thank God. Thank God. 
And that's what we object to. Jesus resisted evil. He did that. He resisted it. But did did you notice? He resisted evil that was against or displayed against God the Father. He resisted evil that brought into question the validity or the truth of God's Word. He He didn't resist it against Himself. He never did that. Go back and look. Well, we can look later on in Matthew 26. We'll look specifically when we get there at the abuses that were laid out upon our Christ what he went through. Again, we've already distinguished. He's, he is our example. And then Luke would add in chapter 23, verse 34, of course, when he cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know. Christ is our example. And we pray that the Lord, through His Word and through His Holy Spirit, would make us more like Him the way that we respond to evil and to mistreatment. Well, Christians, as I say, we're not doormats. We're not supposed to be that. We do have actions to take, and we're to take the proper action. We're to take a proper stance against evil. The church is not called to vanquish evil. can't do that. Or to rise up against every evil injustice. We speak against that. But the specific work of the church is not political picketing and sit-ins and all those kinds of things. It's not. The work of the church is to speak and to demonstrate in our lives the truth of God. To speak openly and clearly regarding the clear teaching of Christ and His Word in any venue that's available for us. But there are two primary areas that we can look at and say, well, this is, this is the way that there's a response. The church is to be an example regarding evil literally within the church. That's our first mandate. Does that not make sense? What you mean there's evil in the church can be? There is. And we have clear guidance on how to handle that, do we not? Where is it? Matthew 18. And we have to be committed to do that and to do it rightly. When evil raises its ugly head, we're to address it. We're to address it as God has laid out, as Christ lays out in His very first direction to the church. And I think the second mention of the church, Ecclesia, in that that case, this is prior to, uh, of course, Pentecost and the church, but it's He's laying this out for those who gather in His name. And it stands true today. That's what we have. So you have that. We have clear direction against approaching, handling, addressing evil within the church, and then, of course, in civil government. Now, I've worked in government all my life. Still do. How many work in government in here or have worked in government? Okay. It's important to understand your role. (laughs) It's important to understand what God has done in establishing uh, order for society. This is His desire. So within the church and even within civil government, we effect a proper response against evil. 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 and 14, he says again, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, 
or to governors as sent by Him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Now that's pretty basic. But that's the general guideline. The safety of citizens. The punishment of evildoers. And we understand that a proper response uh, regarding crime and so forth does act as a deterrent. Okay, And it's, it's the right thing to do. It's an, ex, it's an expression of care for others, for people you don't even know. That's why we act responsibly within government. I know as a, as a police officer for 40 years, Romans 13 has been very important to me in understanding my role, uh, much more so when I was a young patrol officer running up and down the streets for Cobb County, more so than now where I just work in training. But still, what was my responsibility? And understanding what the Lord God says about that responsibility, first and foremost, takes a tremendous amount of pressure off me. Should I ever find myself in a situation where I have to use force, or certainly deadly force. God makes it clear in His Word for people who enforce the law, for people who are judges. I hesitate to go here because Melissa spent this past week on jury duty. I'm trying to see her face right now. Eyebrows raised or not. But she can't talk about the case, and, and she didn't. But after the case was over, she was just torn up. I mean, to the point of tears. It's like, uh, she, she said, I, in so many words, I, I've seen a cross-section of our society today, and it's a, not a pretty picture about what motivates people regarding right and wrong. You know, last week we talked about what we deserve, or maybe the week before we hear that a lot, even in commercials and so forth. Get the whatever that you deserve, okay? We're taught that we deserve nothing. And it was very, very upsetting for her. And I fear that for those who have a, uh, a strong moral conscience and who are focused upon doing the right thing, when you try to implement that in our current culture and governmental system, you run cross grain through the populace. You really do. And had to minister to them this week, okay? <laughs> Common experience that I'm afraid too many people have. But believers are to uphold the law. We're to report crime. We're to be good citizens. Because not to restrain evil, that's not a just thing. It's not a kind thing. And it results in problems. We're to treat every single person with dignity. Oh, yeah. Most people would agree with that, especially for themselves. But now they're thinking, well, now those who act dignified, because to do less is to give some sort of tacit approval to their problem or to, to their evil. But no, that's not, that's not true. That's not true at all. We're still to speak against that. We're talking about attitude. We're not talking about withholding the truth regarding a situation. And you might add, well, I find it hard to treat someone as dignified or with dignity when they're acting in an undignified manner. Well, what would you say? What kind of things would, would go in that category? How are they acting in an undignified manner? We might be even thinking about what the Bible says about it. If someone is involved in a, 
in the practice, if you might say, of sexual sin or child abuse or any kind of criminality or really just living as a worldly Christian, claiming to be a Christian, and we don't hold them in the same light. You follow what I'm saying? No? We don't condone evil. We speak in love against evil and against sin. We do that. We do that, as Christ says, after having first removed the beam that's in your own eye. We do that. We do that with due regard, lest we be caught up in their difficulty. If I can paraphrase, I can't go right to that scripture, but I hope you know what I'm talking about. Being careful as we involve ourselves in that, because speaking the truth is going to put you on the spot. It's going to do that. Treating others with dignity. And Christ would say our first and foremost response is to treat everyone with dignity. Everyone. I shared last week how what I learned in high school, my old history teacher, Mr. Smith, said the right for me to sling my fist stop, or you to sling your fist stop where my nose began. I think that did more to help me understand that aspect of the law and the Constitution that he was trying to, <laughs> to make clear. And it seems that we're getting away from that. That it's personal rights above everything. And that no one has a right to tell me how I should think about anything. Particularly Christians. We seem to be sliding that way in our culture. God help us. Verse 40, he says, If anyone wants to sue you, and he's literally talking about court action here, but he's talking about a legitimate court action. I understand that's clear in the word and in the context. A legitimate court action, he says, they want to sue you and take your shirt. Here's Christ. I mean, let them have your coat also. And what kind of attitude change, heart change would that require in your life? What is he talking about here? And I think this is one of those scriptures that you have to really look at from a cultural perspective. Look at it as if it were spoken, or as it was spoken in that day to Christ's audience. I've already said that he's talking about a legitimate claim here. And it, would, it assumes that it's something that you know you've done wrong. You, whether it was intentional or not, you're guilty. That's the situation here. And he says, if they're suing you for your shirt or your, your inner garment, that, that Greek word is... is C-H-I-T-O-N-A, okay? It was a very common thing. Everybody had one. It was mostly seen as that white or off-white garment that you slipped over that went all the way down, that had the sleeves and all. You see that. That was like, they call it the shirt or that, that word there, the chona. I guess that's right. To be distinguished from your coat, okay? Now, the coat was the outer garment, the himation, H-I-M-A-T-I-O-N. A much more valuable, much more expensive garment. So you get in the context now about what Jesus is saying. They've sued you and they want to take a person who was poor but had to pay up under law and under Roman law may have to give up their clothing. I understand from what I read that most people had a change of clothing, the, the vast majority, and that was it. And if you had to give one of them up, that was a burden, wasn't it? You'd have to find a really private place <laughs> to get cleaned up, I guess, for the next day. But he says there, in that case, you're legitimately, you're legitimately guilty. They've sued you for your shirt. He's saying our attitude would be to give them the coat as well. 
we've wronged them. What does that say about the way we have to change our thinking? He's appealing to them with this example from their culture. This is not, this is not representative of something much more deeper. He's talking about your shirt and your coat. That's what he's talking about. And its value in that day and time, in that system. In fact, there was law, understand, that if you did give someone your coat, it was more or less a, a gesture for that particular incident. And by that I mean the law required that if you gave up your coat, having already given up your shirt, that, you, that they could not keep your coat after dark. They had to return that to you. Because that's what you covered up with. It says it was used as a blanket. You cover up, might even cover up your, your kids with it. It was a very important piece of your livelihood from a very practical standpoint. And actually a law that said you can't, can't keep that overnight. If they've made that gesture, they've given that to you, you've got to give it back before dark. So there's a whole different light on it, doesn't it? When we understand it from that perspective. A legal judgment was fairly made against us for a certain amount, we should be willing to offer even more, he says, or commentators says, in order to show our regret for the wrong that we've done. And to do to do that to send a message that we're we're not bitter and we're not resentful. Now Christ is dealing with the attitude of the heart and the attitude of the mind. Our security as believers can never be in things. It can never be in material things. It can't. That's worldly. We enjoy the blessings that God has given us. And he tells us why he's given us. He tells us things in the church like the reason so many, so many have so much is so nobody else will go without. That's the plan. And that we use what he's given us for His honor and glory, we know it can all be taken away. We can go back and ask Job if we have to and get a real clear understanding of it. But this issue about being sued, oh my. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, i got it marked here, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is interesting because this nails it down for the New Testament church. Does anyone... Or does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Interesting question, is it not? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now he's assuming here that the natural or the, the most prevalent response to the first part of that scripture is, well, we're not qualified to do that. We've got the court system, Okay. Or do you not know that saints will be judged or that saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Don't you know that? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I don't read that like we use that word today. You have no account. I'm just a no account. No, okay. Not like that. 
Do you appoint those judges who are of no account in the church? In other words, they don't have an understanding about the Word of God, the law of God, to make sure that that's implied. They may have a general basis from that. Supposedly, our laws and rules are supposed to come from that. That's not always true, is it? That's challenged every day. He says, I say this to your shame. Is it not so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law, and he's talking about a Christian brother, goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Paul is making a practical appeal appeal here. (coughs) There are things that can come up between brothers and sisters in the church. Dare I say most things that are best and better rectified and brought to conclusion Right here. Everybody have a problem with that? And I trust that we do that. Now, I understand. I mean, we do. We're, we're blessed to have institutions within our society that do help us. Issues of insurance and resources that we pay for, that we would be unwise not to take advantage of. But you want justice, right? You got to be careful with that. About asking for justice, okay? Most of the time we don't want that. But in a particular situation, you just want things to be done right. And we approach that according to the guidelines that the Scriptures give us. It's based upon love. It's apart from greed. We can make sure by being obedient to that that the right thing is done within the church. And from time to time, I hadn't been an elder here long enough to know that, but uh, I know that uh, such, such thinking, such commitment is in place you know, for, for elders or a, a group of designated people, certainly not just the elders, but people throughout the church who have expertise can be brought into a situation to make something right where someone has been wrong for whatever reason and truly make it right. That when it is made right from a practical standpoint, that as we said, that there's no hard feeling, that there is confession, that there is forgiveness. Is that not the way we want to live? And more specifically, the way that we're commanded to live in, in Scripture. That's what we have. So how do we do that? From 1 Corinthians there, where we have the truth of God's Word, this is how we're equipped. This is why Paul is saying, y'all can do this, that's what he's saying. How can you think you can't? You have the truth. You have the Spirit of God within you as a believer. And you've been gifted. The church has been gifted. Right? And we're capable. We're commanded. We're expected to deal with these kinds of issues. That latter verse when he's talking about judging angels, that word there is really a word that's better translated rule or govern. And the picture there is that because the Bible clearly says that that's the responsibility of Christ, but it would indicate that in some fashion we're there assisting, we're doing something, we're involved in that process. The English word is translated judgment, but again, it's more closely related to governing or ruling. That's what he's talking about there. So I find that interesting. Very interesting. Four minutes after. Verse... 41 of chapter 5. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now once again, 
once again, look at this from a cultural perspective here. <coughs> again, the colloquial phrase has survived, go the extra mile, right? Turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. Still do that today. What's he talking about? A Latin word, million, means a thousand paces. That's what it meant in the Roman world. And it's referred to by what they call impressments. In other words, of course, you understand that in that day, you had an occupying government. You had the Roman government occupying that area. And you know as well that they could take a person under law and make them drop whatever it was they're doing. They may be, they may be going to the pharmacy to get medicine for their child. And a Roman soldier says, oops, come here, carry this. Okay? They can make them carry it for this distance. They can make them do that under law. Now, can you imagine how the people felt about that? Can you imagine working hard in an agrarian society to do what you needed to do that day? You know, you're talking about burning daylight. Okay, that's what they, that's what they were concerned with. Getting things done while you can get them done. And some Roman soldier grabs and says, oops, nope, come here, you've got to do this. Okay, and you do that. And Christ is calling for a change of heart and a change of mind that compels a person to do something over the top, out of the ordinary. And granted, this certainly would be. Are you kidding me? For the Roman government? I'm to have this kind of attitude? That's what he's talking about. That's the impression that he's trying to make here. I can imagine that. But that's what he was saying. I mean, there's no, uh, not a metaphorical thing here. He's, he's talking in, in practicality. He's talking actually do this is what he's talking about. For what purpose? Why, follow this, why would a person think this is, this is no good, this, this isn't right, this is asking too much? Why, follow me here now, why would a person do that? Why would they think like that? Can you answer that question this morning? Why would they think that way? That that's not worthwhile doing. Go the extra mile with this Roman soldier, representative of this occupying government who cares nothing about what i got to do today. Why, why would that be so? Maybe I should ask it this way. What must you lose sight of in order to think like that? What? Yeah, I'm thinking, you're on the other end of it. I'm thinking that this, that my actions, as Christ is saying here, aren't going to have an impact on this person. Right? That's what you're thinking. I'm not going to do that for him. Christ says, you don't know that. Go through the, go through the Bible and read about Christ on one occasion where the Roman soldier said, look, got a servant sick. Let me paraphrase. Fix him. Okay? Heal him. Okay? Well, and then he says, well, you, don't, you don't have to go. Just say it. He says, I've got people under me. Bob says he was a centurion. He had a hundred people under him. He says, I've got people under me. You just say the word. I've heard enough from you, seen enough from you, and if you're truly in command, if you'll bear the phrase there, just say it, and it'll happen. What did Jesus say about that Roman soldier's faith? What did He say about that? He says, in so many words, I've been up and down Jerusalem, and I've never, I've yet to find faith like that. And that's what we do. 
We think that person's not worthy of that. They're not worthy of that. And we limit the power of God in a person's life through our word, our testimony, or our example. Because deep down, we think they're not. We've already judged that. That's, that's throwing pearls to swine. Now, I understand that. That can be the case. But you don't know that. You don't know that. Christ asks us to go above and beyond. This is a question of liberty. Christ is our liberty. And I wrote down here a question. Do you possess a sense of freedom within you because of the presence of Christ? Do you? Or do you still feel bound by all of this? What frees us? What shall make you free? The truth. The truth of God's Word. And we embrace that. Christ says, now if I make you free, He says, you're free indeed. You're, you're genuinely free. That is, you're not bound by all of this. All this what? What am I referring to? These attitudes. These beliefs. This way of thinking. Christ asks us to be different. To go beyond. One minute. 542. Give to Him who asks of you and do not turn away from Him who wants to borrow from you. And I'm just going to give you my bullet points here. Possessiveness is a characteristic of a fallen human nature. That's what it is. Possessiveness is a characteristic of fallen human nature. The implication here is regarding a person who has a legitimate need. We don't ever want to be apart. I rarely hand out cash. I'm approached, hey, $15. You want something to eat? Yeah, no. Or the guy, one guy, my house burned down. Oh, how long did you live there? I lived there 15 years. Oh, what's the address? Uh, uh, Sometimes give, giving a person what they want can be destructive. We want to be wise. We want to follow. But he's saying check your heart first. We're to give as soon as we know there's a need. Our giving is to be willing. It's to be generous. It's to be loving. And against that, he says, do not love the world from 1 John 1.15. Don't love the world, nor the things in the world. And he would go and say, if you love that, you, the love of the Father is not in you. If that's what dominates you, if that's what people see, if that's what guides your life, that's an underlining principle, that's your practice, as John liked to say, that's evidence that the love of God is not in you. That's a serious thing. Property, issues regarding property and materialism can be very, and often are, very, very worldly. We're stewards of His blessings. Beware, Luke says, we'll finish up. I'm going to go over one minute. Luke 12, 15, beware and be on your guard against, listen, every form of greed. This is His admonition. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. As one translation says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. That's what I learned as a kid. And that's true. We don't, we don't measure it that way. Lastly, the only person who is non-defensive, non-vengeful, never bears a grudge, has no spite in his heart, is what? 
That is the description of a person, quite frankly, who has died to self. And that's where Christ wants to take us through these six antithesis. We'll do the sixth one next week, and we'll talk about love and hate. Lord,